0: Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 11.
1: Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host Victoria Crandall.
0: Hey listeners, welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host Victoria Crandall. Today's episode features Eric Hersman, CEO of Brick and founder of Kenya's iHub. You can connect with Eric at @WhiteAfrican on Twitter. Technologist, blogger, TED Fellow, serial entrepreneur, passionate advocate, and patron of Africa's tech startups. Eric is a well-known elder of Kenya's tech scene, having helped to found some of Kenya's leading tech companies and ecosystem institutions. In response to the outbreak of post-electoral violence in Kenya in 2008, Eric set up Ushahidi, a crowd-sourcing mapping tool deployed in crisis situations with three other co-founders. In 2010, he founded the iHub, Nairobi's innovation hub, which is the nexus for Kenya's entrepreneurs, hackers, designers, researchers, and investors. In 2014, he helped to set up Brick, a manufacturer of a rugged internet router for Africa and a provider of free internet via its Moja service. He spends most of his time at Brick these days, where he's CEO. He also helped to found Gearbox, a hub for hardware development, and he's also a principal at Savannah Fund, an African venture capital fund. He is the founder of the influential Africa technology blogs, The White African, and AfriGadget. Eric is also a senior TED Fellow and PopTech Social Innovation Fellow. This was a really special episode for me because Eric has had such an impact on many African startups. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. I also want to apologize because there are some guest appearances made by some birds and my dog Gus. (laughs) Without further ado, here's my conversation with Eric Hurstman. Eric, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. It is great to have you here.
2: Well, thanks for having me on it.
0: So Eric, I'd love to start off by knowing why do you call yourself the white African?
2: That was funny, actually. I was in the States. <laughs> People were calling me you know, a white African when they found out where I was from. And so I kind of just tongue in cheek bought the domain. And when I started blogging way back in 2005, I just picked one of my, I think a dozen or so domains ahead of the time and used it, ended up branding myself. And so just stuck with it because it had already been going on for long enough at that point.
0: And where did you grow up?
2: I grew up between Sudan and Kenya. Basically, the war got bad in South Sudan, so we moved to Kenya. And then from there, we moved to Khartoum in northern Sudan. And then I went to boarding school in Kenya. So it kind of just bounced back and forth uh, my whole childhood and then went to the U.S. for university.
0: Oh, uh, okay. And that's when they started calling you the white African.
2: Yeah, that's right.
0: Okay. And from the reading I've done... I think by most standards, you've had an atypical childhood as the son of linguist parents. And as you said, working in kind of remote parts of Southern Sudan and kind of bouncing back and forth between Sudan and Kenya. And you've attributed your early exposure to computers to your parents and your upbringing. And I was wondering, are there any other skills or interests that you can trace back to your atypical upbringing or your early childhood?
2: I don't know. I, I, there's probably some things that I don't even think about growing up between both a rural, very rural and an urban Africa in those kind of eighties and nineties was, was kind of a, you learned a lot about just kind of how to deal with the different cultures that you bounced, uh, at least that I bounced through. And so maybe one of the. One of the things I got to take away from that was just the ability to kind of understand the culture that I'm in, bridge between that and the one that I'm from, and use that to my advantage in business and in just in relationships as well.
0: And tell me about the day you started identifying as a technologist.
2: And the day? I'm not sure if there's a day. You know, I, or I guess the I,
0: period I, when you really became uh, conscious that your identity was, you know, was strongly shaped by your affinity for technology.
2: Yeah, you know, I I was, I guess it was probably after my first business, my first real business that I had basically had to shut down. It wasn't working anymore. And I realized that I I knew a lot about how to build websites and technology and everything. And so I, um, I actually went and joined a firm that did websites and emails and all this other kind of web marketing stuff in the US. And I realized at that point that this is something I actually know how to do already. I can get better at it. And really learned about what it was like to be on the service side of the technology industry at that time, and then over the next few years started learning about you know what kind of apps and services you could build on top of it instead of just using it as a either an information gathering place or a way to sell products and so I started thinking about app development and getting into that more but it was it was it was in that time I guess when I went from that analog business world into the digital business world, that I realized that that was something that I could do.
1: And
0: what period was that?
2: After university, I had uh, started my, my first business was a furniture business. I was coming to East Africa and I was filling containers of high-end furniture and, and home accessories from the craftsmen here and then sa- taking those to the wholesale furniture markets of North Carolina and having to deal with inventory and cash flow and all these other things and uh it was in that time that i actually learned the the very big difference between academically understanding cash flow and inventory and then actually having to deal with it practically in a business it turns out having your inventory tied up for 6 to 8 months on a ship and trying to pre-sell everything is pretty hard and um eventually I had to fold the business about 2 years later and so it was it was after that i was sitting there saying okay i've just failed and a business. I hadn't really had any major failures in my life until that time. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do now? And looking at my skill sets and saying, okay, well, I can still, I know how to build these websites and how to do these things that I've been doing for my own business. What kind of positions are available out there for me to, to go out and learn more? And so that's kind of the point in my life where I was looking at things very introspectively and thinking where I could improve and what the opportunities were. And that's when I jumped into tech.
0: Okay. And um, I'm going to fast forward a little bit because there's just so much ground to cover here. You've had such a prolific career already. So I'd love to know what were the steps that led you to create Ushahidi with your team of co-founders?
2: Yeah. So a little bit of history there is all of us were bloggers. So back in the early 2000s, blogging in Africa was not huge. There was a couple hundred to a couple thousand in the early 2000s. And so we were all part of that community. And in Kenya, there was just a couple hundred. And so we all knew each other. And then and some of us had met up personally. Some of us had just known each other through blogging. Well, the post-election violence in Kenya started in beginning of, well, end of 2007, beginning of 2008. And uh, it was in that first week that we reached out to each other and and said, hey, what can be, what can be done with tech? What can we do? to help make more sense of what's going on here. Surely there's something that tech can, can provide. And you know, it was this coming together of ideas around how do we map what's going on in real time? How do we get the information from who? At first, it was getting it from media personalities who couldn't publish things, come to the world under their own name. They would just send it to us anonymously. And other times it would be bloggers who would just find that information and post it. Uh, with a geolocation. And then within a couple of days, we opened it up to just anybody who could send us a text message. So this idea of on our nights and weekends, just building something really quick took us, I think it was two or three days for the first prototype to be built. And then we released it and people started sending information in. And so, you know, I would attribute a lot of the the success to of, of Ushahidi to our history as as bloggers, understanding how to write about things, how to talk about things, having a community already that we could reach out to. And then getting them into what we were doing and, and getting their help, uh, it quickly became much more community oriented. And then we actually didn't make a business of it for another three or four months. And then we still didn't get any money to make an organization for another three or four months after that. So it wasn't until August of 2008 that we finally got some funding and, and started building the Ushihidi that you see today, which is a big open source project that has... 150,000 deployments of it worldwide in 50 different languages. And it's been pretty incredible to watch and be a part of.
0: Now its influence is um, it's outstanding and it's incredible where and in what situations it's been deployed.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, we started with the post-election violence in Kenya. The very first next deployment, and this is actually what drew us to thinking there might be something here that would be an actual business, was that... The guys down in South Africa were having their xenophobic attacks. And so we said, okay, well, here, just take all the code, because we had just kind of written it fast and dirty. And we said, you can customize it yourself to your own needs. And then there was some more stuff going on in Central Africa that they wanted it for as well. And we did the same thing. And we're like, okay, hold on here. This, Why don't we make this an open source piece of software? Because we wouldn't have built it if there was something that had already existed. And nor would these people have needed to do so much work on our code if what we had was really usable by other people. And so that's what actually said, Okay, that's what kind of started the conversation amongst the four of us that said, hey, what if we actually make this an open source software tool and create a nonprofit organization, primarily because that's where the funding could come from and keep us very neutral and then see if there's something here. And so that's what we did. So I think it was about April of two thousand that we decided to form the organization. And then in August 2008, we got some funding to make it a reality. So the first big, big use case of it after that was in Gaza. So the war on Gaza, the Al Jazeera deployed our software about a year later. And then a couple months after that, a bunch of NGOs in India used it for their big election. And then it kind of took a life of its own after that. Where most people around the world really heard about it was because of the US media, was the Haiti earthquake in 2010. And so that's where it got a lot more media attention. And then it kind of took that and just kept being used everywhere else. So shortly after that was the tsunami in Japan. And then there's been Pretty much every, every earthquake, every election, every crisis or disaster around the world. I think we're in 150 countries now. You'll, you'll have seen some type of Ushahidi deployment. Oftentimes we don't know about it until after or after it's already out there. One use case that I found really interesting early on was. There was these Russian forest fires and really big heat wave that was going across during the summer of two thousand ten as well. We had no idea that Ushahidi was being deployed there at all until we got a message from one of their admins that said, Listen, Google Maps is blocking us because we've used up too much of the free API call. Can you help us with this? So we said, Oh sure. We know some of the, the guys at Google Maps, we called them up and said, Hey, can you just whitelist this one deployment of Ushahidi? These guys are using it for this purpose, and they did. And so, you know, it's those kind of things that have been happening over the years that really, when we're making a tool for something that's used in a really bad situation generally, gives the people who are part of the team a lot of, I guess, excitement, because you know that you're doing something that matters. Uh, you're seeing people put to use your tool in rough situations and hard situations, and you know that it's making their lives better.
0: Yeah, and the slogan of Ushahedi really speaks to that. I mean, it's giving a voice to people who didn't have one or in certain situations.
2: Yeah, and if you think about it, back in 2008 when we began, there wasn't the same level of social media use in a lot of emerging market countries, at least. Even in the main ones, there wasn't. As far as you know, using something like Twitter or even Facebook. And if you had those, you needed a password too. So having a tool that you could just send a text message with just a dumb phone meant that we really did hit the lowest common denominator. And that's what we've really tried to maintain is always having this ability to say, even if you don't have a smartphone, you can still be a part of this. You can still use it to respond. And you can also use it to submit problems that you're having in your life during a disaster or election or whatever it is.
0: Yeah. And again, exactly what you said. I mean, the social media did not... you It was completely kind of nascent, um, still in a nascent stage of development 10 years ago. So again, it kind of shows the power of creating something that can be used on a feature phone. And like you said, creating something that's lowest common denominator that can reach
2: the most people. Yeah. And I think that's what a lot of people... Miss when you're talking about things in Africa is there's really a a mixture of things that happens around building technologies. There's trying to hit the lowest common denominator, which is what do people have in their pocket, and that's generally a feature phone. Though it's tipping over in 2016 for the first time, we had more smartphones imported into Africa than non-smartphones. So I think the tools and things that people build will change because of that, and we're already seeing that a lot more Android apps and services that people can't access. The other is that there's a real need to blend the analog and the digital. You have to figure out a way that people's analog world marries up with your digital service or product in some way. And I think when you do that, you find a really, you can take those two things. So analog and digital and what people have in their pocket, you can really hit a mass market.
0: And I want to touch on something you mentioned earlier because it's, it's been such an important part of your career about blogging. What was it or why was the Kenyan blogging scene so close? Or why, why were Kenyan bloggers kind of in close contact with each other?
2: I don't know how to differentiate it from our West African or Southern African friends and and other bloggers. But at that time, for whatever reason, the Kenyan blogosphere was fairly small. Like I said, a couple hundred bloggers. And Kenya for a long time has been, and still is today, is one of these places that is very communal. And so people do kind of talk to each other and work together on things. And I think that plays into it. So people wanted to know who each other were. They wanted to respond and have conversations online with each other. And so it was a mixture of, of people from both Kenya and Kenyan diaspora that brought everything together. And we had some strong personalities that had they were very open and were communicating. Uh, about both could be anything from tech to politics, to media, to whatever. Right. And, and, but that conversation was one that was open and that people were engaging in. And I think it's like any early, maybe it's the size of a pool of people in a new space. But when you have something like that, they tend to band together, tend to get to know each other. And that doesn't mean you don't have people with differences or people who don't get along. It just means that you tend to know everybody. So back in 2005 to maybe 2008, 2009, that was the case. And then we had a wave of a lot more people coming on. We had a, a wave of a lot more social media with Twitter and Facebook, which would then tend to fracture that growing body into different platforms for them to express themselves. So, you know, I think that's that's what's happened. We've had a, a, just a, a tsunami, a massive wave of people getting into social media over the past decade, 10 years. And it's been interesting to see that people take different platforms and they... talk and write and do different things on each of these platforms. And while there's still a a strong blogging base in Kenya, there's not as many as compared to everybody who's on on Twitter or on Facebook.
0: And to touch on that same idea, you've also kind of extended that idea of community to Kenya's startup scene and its entrepreneurs. And, um, you know, you've said... Many times it's kind of a recurring theme that um the success of the iHub that you founded in 2010 one of its kind of key components is that there is a really strong sense of community and you've described kind of the sense of community as one of Kenya's key competitive advantages and can you elaborate on that?
2: Yeah, sure. The you know, we when we built the iHub in 2010 the idea was just kind of creating a place for the tech community to get together, to find each other. And just some small history on that. It was back in 2008 at a bar camp, Bar Camp Nairobi in the summer of 2008, that a couple of us had helped organize that were sitting around together around a table and, and asking each other, why is it that we only see each other a couple times a year at conferences? Wouldn't it be neat if we had a place of our own? And that was the seed that was planted that would then become the iHub. And it was really about this And again, I I can't compare it to other countries. I'll just talk about Kenya. There is a desire and a need to have FaceTime. And just because we're in tech doesn't distance us from that norm. And so creating a way that we could all, in a space, that we could all get together was what was important. And we didn't know what that would look like yet. So what happened was I started looking around for money right away back in 2008, seeing if anybody would just invest in this idea. And none of the kind of big players at the time wanted to do so. As the founders of Ushahidi, we sat down about a year later and said, Well, why don't we just fund this ourselves? Because we have access to getting and raising more money. So we'll do this for the community and it won't be our thing. It'll be the community thing from from the beginning. So that's what we did. And then I immediately started looking for people who would be kind of elders to that community, people who were respected and well known in their area, were it made up from different parts of the technology, some, some coders, some media people, guys in the big business world, and, and bring us all together. And we would be the advisory board that would have the final say on big decisions. But then we could also just channel community, the community to make sure that the leadership was doing the right things and the iHub was building itself out to the best value for that community. So having said all that, what we did is we, we got together and we had our first opening in March 2010. And um, I remember, you know, one of the advisors getting up on stage and saying, okay, we built the foundation. We literally had no paint on the walls yet, I don't think. And then he said, but this is for all of us. And so what we build on top of this foundation is up to you. And that goes to a lot of that community focus that I like to think is a big part of the iHub is community oriented. It's a, you know, I guess the closest thing I think about it is like, it's your comments, right? It's, It's where you can come together. It doesn't matter what you do in that tech space. And there's going to be different things happening for different people. As I looked around the tech communities in different parts of the continent, I would drop into Ghana or Nigeria or South Africa or Mozambique or just different countries. And I I realized that the difference between what we had, at least in Nairobi, uh, compared to those other large cities was that people were banding together and trying to help each other out. Now, again, doesn't mean there isn't competition. Doesn't mean there's not people who don't get along but by and large the bent is to kind of pay it forward and help each other out. So the whole idea of the I have was to encourage and accelerate that activity and that's what we we put our efforts to over the intervening years.
0: Yeah, it just it seems like such a special singular thing that it's like you'd love to have a recipe for how do you clone kind of that sense of community and like you said paying it forward. So it's and of course it's not it's not an easy thing to diagnose, okay, why is that? Why is Kenya so strong for that? But it's something really unique.
2: Yeah, I, I think so too. Again, I haven't lived in a lot of the other countries. And I think you do need to live and be in that society for long enough to know it. But in, in Kenya, we've ha- I think we just have a good mixture of community and entrepreneurial activity or entrepreneurial bent. So if you start mixing the two of those with the hunger for knowledge and you can start seeing some interesting things develop. I've long Mm -hmm. said, and I I still believe this to be true, and I actually just need to quantify it now because it's been long enough to get some numbers. But I think that most of the really interesting new tech ideas, the people who are doing new products or services, majority of the really interesting new ideas are still coming from from Kenya. And um, you have great scale in Nigeria and West Africa and some places And you have great ideas coming from there too. You have some great ideas coming from South Africa and a lot more capital down there. But um, you still see a lot of really interesting new stuff. It's probably a mixture of having undersea cables earlier, having mobile money at scale earlier, and also this mixture of having community and capital, enough capital to put towards it.
0: Would you say another factor would be regulation or perhaps maybe relaxed regulation that can allow a tech sector to thrive?
2: Yeah, I would say specifically early on, that was the case. We have a more active legislative bent now towards um, regulating what we're doing, which is unfortunate. P- basically, politics is getting in the way. And that's, I think, going to have a little bit of a, a chilling effect on what can be done. But at the same time, you're right. As Back in, up until a few years ago, having a more relaxed regulatory environment has helped us to come up with ideas and, and put them to work faster. I mean, my, my great example on this was, you know, we had mobile money starting in about 2007. That's when it kind of really started to take off here with M-Pesa. And um, it wasn't until about 2012, or I think it was about 2012, that we saw Nigeria first legislate and it only allowed like 13 or 14 companies to take part in that, in mobile money at all in their country. And it was really interesting to me to see that because it took a number of years for them to Say okay, yes, this is a thing we will do, and then they so tightly legislated it that it was hard for hard for just anybody to get involved. You almost had you had to be licensed for it, and that meant that there's just not as many players. And if you don't have as many people trying something out, you're not going to get as many experiments, and therefore you're going to have a harder time getting a really successful company to come out of this. And so I mean, it succeeded there; they're doing fine with more money. this things are happening. What was interesting about that for me was looking at the different ways that regulators can help or hinder a country's growth just by throttling it and over legislating something.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious to know, you you touched a bit on this, but what are maybe the three or four key ingredients to creating a thriving innovation hub in sub-Saharan Africa?
2: So, again, first caveat is that it'll depend on the city you're in and the very culture of that city, too. Right. And then there are different types of tech hubs. So we started the Afro Labs group, which is an association of the tech hubs in Africa. And the interesting thing to me was to realize that there's different types of tech hubs, too. So I'm trying to get at your, your question, but it depends what you're building. So we were trying to build a very community-oriented technology of a place where people could come together. And then we we added on things like our research arm and consulting and our supercomputer cluster and our user experience lab and things like that over time. But it really was about bringing people together. That was the main point. Other organizations started up and they were looking to bring coders together, get work for them so that they could maybe build their own startup on the side, but then they banded together to get work done. And one of the ones that does did that, why am I forgetting the name, is the one in Cameroon. Again, they were one of the earliest ones on the continent. And they did some really great stuff about bringing people together, coders, engineers, giving them work, you know, signing for contracts. And then allowing those guys to also do their own things, their own side hustles until they could make a business of it. And so that's a very different model than what the iHub was. And other ones were very academic. So you'd start seeing a space like Ice Addis come together in Ethiopia. And it was on the campus of the university. Therefore, it had a more academic bent, had a different type of person that was involved in that compared to what we would see at the iHub as well. So having said that, if you're trying to build something like the iHub, what is the secret sauce for that? I think, first of all, it's, it's really making it something that is open to everyone. So having a real open arms type of environment where as long as you're involved in technology in some way or need that technology in some way, you're part of that community and you can come in and find each other. Oftentimes I would tell people the real secret sauce of the iHub is the serendipity of who you just happen to run into. We don't do anything but just introduce so-and-so to so-and-so and things happen. And it could be an investor to a startup. It could be a startup CEO trying to find a CTO. It could be a guy in university working on a project and running into a guy for his senior project at the coffee bar who can help him with it. It could be a blogger finding a new story. All these kind of things were really important. And it was really just about finding each other.
0: Right. And if I can just add yeah, very on. quickly to that, that Nevi, Nevi Sharma, she said that she met her co-founder for eLemu, of course, at the iHub. And it was really that they got to develop, you know, bounce ideas off each other playing foosball. So, so it's, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right. That kind of serendipity is so important. Just as you've said before, just putting smart people in a room and seeing what happens.
2: The early days, we had enough money for the first kind of year and a half, two years of running the operations at the iHub. And um, we were trying to get our corporate partners on board. So uh, I remember sitting down, Joe Mushero, Isis, some of the other people who were part of Google Kenya back in the day. We were sitting down with them in the Google offices and saying, "Okay, we want you to be a part of the iHub," and not saying we want them to be giving us money or anything like that. Just like, just be a, be a member of the community here as well. And um, Isis Nyongo, she she said, "Well, you know, how are you guys going to measure success?" Which is a very Google way of of thinking about things, right? Measure everything. <laughs> and I, we were we were, sitting there and I was like, "Well, you know, we believe we put enough smart people in the room, good things will happen." And, uh, it was kind of silence for a minute. Everybody looked around and started chuckling with each other. And I just said, listen, I says, this is all an experiment. We have no idea what's going to happen. We'll know in a couple of years what to measure. But right now, we're just trying to get people in a space together. And we know that we've got a lot of smart tech people, a lot of smart people in big companies, a lot of in- investors who are saying they're interested. What happens if we get them together? And they were, they said, yeah, sure, we're in. And, um, kind of took it from there.
0: And I'd love to transition a bit and, Describe the conversation when you and the Ushahidi team started to discuss the seeds of the idea that would become the brick.
2: Yeah, so that actually happened. I was down in South Africa with a guy named Hank Kleinhans, who was an older friend of mine from the tech world in in Africa. And he had a startup called Skyrove. Skyrove was one of those companies that they would come in and bring Internet into like a restaurant or a cafe or a, a small hotel. And then the restaurant owner could print out these little chits with passwords on them and hand them out to people and they could get online. And he was struggling because he was a little bit underfunded in what he was trying to do and um, ignorant of that type of business. I just asked him, Well, why don't you build your own router? And he responded to me, thinking, Well, that'd be way too expensive and it would take too much time. But it was in my head because it was the meeting I had right before I was going to the airport to fly back to Nairobi. And so I was sitting on the airplane and one of those times where I had no power on my computer. And I didn't have a book with me or anything. And so I ended up just thinking, which is something that I think none of us do enough of anymore. And I was sitting there kind of bored. And I was like, well, what would a router look like if you made it for Africa? What would it be? And started sketching out this thing that was kind of brick shaped. And we tend to not have good power in in the continent. So, or at least it, it fails quite often. So having a battery built into it was important. Realizing that majority, 90-something percent of all of our data traffic happens through the mobile phones saying, okay, well, let's just put a SIM card in it instead of requiring an Ethernet connection. And so it's just sketch this thing out. And anyway, I land and I sit down with the Ushihiti team the next day, those that were in Nairobi, two or three of us, and I said, so I've got this crazy idea. Making things has become accessible because of 3D printing and the costs for doing circuit boards you can prototype things out with Arduino and everything else. Why don't we just try and see what we can come up with? And so a couple of people at Ushahidi got interested and excited about it too. And we just started fumbling our way forward with this thing. And um, in the, I mean, the first nine months, it looked like an IED. I'm astonished that the airport guys (laughs) would let me through the airport with that in my suitcase. But um, we finally got to a place where, kind of worked and there was something here we said okay well let's take this more seriously and something that's really interesting about Ushahidi's history is important here which is while we were a nonprofit tech company we were primarily funded with kind of operational money not program or project money and that meant we had a lot of freedom in how to spend our our money and that was what allowed us to build the iHub well it was also what allowed us to say hey let's put some money towards this brick thing and see what happens And so over the next year and a half, we spent probably, I don't know, close $70, $100,000, somewhere in that range on prototyping out Brick. And we finally got it to a place that it worked and we did a Kickstarter. We saw there was a lot more interest around it and uh, said, okay, if we're going to do this, we need to spin it out as its own company. And as a board, we agreed to spin it out. And that's when Brick was founded in uh, October 2013.
0: And. What has been the biggest developments between now and then?
2: I'd say that it was really, first of all, it was was realizing that you could build a hardware product in Africa and it had a a lot of value in a lot of other countries. So we ended up shipping that first device to 54 countries around the world. And I think there's a lot of people that didn't realize they could do that kind of thing here. And I think Brick being an early company in that space gave a lot of other people the encouragement to build their own thing. So we've seen more hardware stuff happening since that time. Places like Gearbox have been built up so that others can do that kind of thing faster. But um, one of the shocking things for me was that it was at the end of 2014. I remember we're sitting in this little room, Philip, Reg, and myself saying, OK, we shipped 3,000 of these devices to 50-something countries. Great. But we're actually not solving the problem. The problem is not, can you make a reliable, strong router for Africa? Sure, that's helpful. And that's maybe part of what you need. but." The big problem is actually, how do you connect people to the internet? And that's the bigger problem. So we started off on this, on this new movement at that point to think through, how do you get people connected to the internet? So you remember earlier in our conversation, I was talking about how we've reached a transition point where more smartphones are coming into the continent. And we're seeing a lot more people with smartphones. It's still not the majority at all. We're seeing a huge number of them get on and and that will continue. So that trend line is already set. The problem is that of those people with smartphones, only about 20 percent of them can pay for the Internet, which means they have Wi-Fi at home or office or they have the money enough to pay for a relatively expensive data bundle. And um, we realized while the technology is helpful, it's actually an affordability issue, not a technology issue. The technology can help with it. though. And so we started off on this track to say, okay, well, what would you do to get people online who can't pay? And um, we've been working towards that for three and a, and a bit years now. And we finally have gotten to a place that we know something works. So what at first happened is we had to build a platform that would sit on top of our hardware. So in this case, we call it Moja, Moja Wi-Fi. Moja just means one in Swahili. And we would put those out in public spaces. The problem we had was that our our initial brick version one was unable to handle the software for more than maybe seven people at a time using it. So that wasn't going to work. And so we needed to have more of a, a business model where we had 50, 100 people in a day on it, which meant that more than seven concurrent users. So then we had to build new hardware. And so we started on that on that track as well. Last year, we launched our Superbrick, which is our enterprise-grade device, and it is a monster. It is super strong, waterproof. It's We worked with Intel on the compute module, so we, it's got a dual-core x86 chip in it. It's got up to 5 terabytes of data storage, 10 hours of battery. It's it's a microserver. It's a small data center. And,
0: and, and how many users can you accommodate on the Superbrick?
2: Yeah, so if they're using the localized content that's on that little on the server on it, it's somewhere between about 30 and 40 people, 40 and 50 depending on how it's tweaked. And then yeah. if you're just online, it can do well over that. So, what we've been doing is we started deploying them at the end of last year, and again, like any initial build on a piece of hardware having all kinds of issues fixing those iteratively, and then getting a much more solid piece of hardware. So now, right now, the Superbrake is just super strong piece of kit. And then also finding problems at scale with our software. So once you start deploying things, you realize, okay, that didn't work. Or there's a bug that only comes out one in 5,000 times that you can never catch in the office. So we started deploying them, but largely in public transportation in Nairobi. So as of today, we have 500 Matatus and buses with free Wi-Fi on them. And um, people jump on our platform and they, they can get online. And it's this is a, the whole internet. So there's no, there's no walled garden here. You can do whatever you want on it. There's also a dashboard that you jump into, which allows you to get movies and TV shows and books and music and other content that's cached locally on the Superbrick itself. And um, we make our money by businesses buying storage on our device and being able to have their app downloadable from that local super brick to people's phones. There's a little bit of advertising, uh, but you know that's not the main driver of our revenue. And as we start to see the numbers grow, there's more and more interest across the market with it.
0: Wow, oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, and I love too that it's not the—I I can't remember what it's called—but uh, Facebook's initiative of kind of deploying free. Internet in emerging markets, but it's really walled content. So it's deciding what Facebook wants the user to access, whereas with the brick and with Mojo, it's the user gets to decide, and I love that.
2: Yeah, we actually had um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and team in the office here in Nairobi a couple years ago, and. It was right after they had kind of gotten hit pretty hard in India around what they called free basics. And free basics was that walled garden where it was a kind of pre-cached content of web stuff. And it was good web stuff. And I remember thinking at the time and talking to some of their executive team and saying, the problem is what you're trying to do is trying to get the internet out there for everyone. But you can't do it because even as much money as you have, it's not enough. You have to come up with a business model that makes this work. And I think you can, right? At that time, we we were prototyping out our, our Moja stuff, but it wasn't ready for the market. And we started talking with them about it, and actually they they became really good friends and have become partners since. I still one hundred percent with you that the free basics model is not the right way to go. That there is a way that you can give the whole internet to people, and that's what we're rolling out, of course, with Moja. Now, the interesting thing is they came on as partners, and so they're one of the the groups that we roll out with, and then they have they pay us for things like app updates. So. Turns out that people don't update their Facebook apps in Africa. Something like 90-something percent never update their Facebook app. But why is that? It's because it's 250 megabytes every two weeks. And if you can't afford 20 megabytes in a week, you're never going to afford 250 megabytes. And so that becomes a security issue or a user experience issue for Facebook. And so they can pre-cache their Facebook app update on our microservers and um at the very edge of the network, and then people who are connected to that can just download it for free. And it's super fast. And so then they pay us for that. So that's just one example, but it gives you the understanding of our business model too, which is saying there's a need to have edge nodes for edge compute and edge storage. Real edge, not just like your capital city, thinking that's your your edge, but actually getting out into the rural areas. because. And everybody knows who lives here that once you're 45 minutes outside of your capital city in the in the local gigabit link, you're kind of SOL. And so um, our whole thing was to say, okay, no, there's a service that we can sell here to businesses. So we're a business-to-business organization in a way, but then we're also a business-to-consumer because basically free public Wi-Fi is a byproduct of our business model.
0: Yeah. And like, what an amazing public good. I mean, honestly, internet needs to be like a public utility, like potable water. And, and of course in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's like, there's still a long way to go in providing those public services. But I mean, internet access to information needs to be one of those for sure.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you, you can't have a 21st century economy without power and connectivity. So you cannot expect your population to take part in the 21st century economy if they cannot have access to information the same way as everybody else in the world. You can't move data. You can't move goods as well or as efficiently without the Internet. And so it's something that governments have to pay more attention to. And, and I think they will. And I think they're doing their best jobs when they are legislating and regulating for the infrastructure itself making it more open, making it more competitive so that it's not just big monopolies. And um, and once we start seeing more of that happening, we're going to see just a grand awakening on the continent of this last blue ocean of internet users. Because what we have is this population of 1.2 billion people and about three quarters of us of the population do not access the internet regularly still. What's going to happen when they do? Things are going to change. One thing that I think a lot about, too, is how this plays out with the youth bulge and the jobs that can become available due to technology that aren't always available at somebody's local level. If you could start thinking about micro work and things like that that are available for people because they have connectivity, you know, then there's a way so somebody can actually earn real money by doing something with their mobile phone connected to the Internet for training in AI in Palo Alto, right? Something like that. And that's interesting to me mm. because it means that there's, there's somebody who could be paid and they're part of the 21st century economy, even though they live in a village three hours outside of the capital city. And um, I think that's where we need to go. We need to go towards embracing technology and making it more open.
0: I mean, absolutely. And kind of in the remaining 10 minutes, I want to ask you a little, some more general questions. If you had a billion dollars, which sector in Africa would you invest in?
2: Well, it depends what my goal was. So if I'm going to try and make the country more efficient, I'm going to just make sure the roads and sidewalks are better, right? And that's like the first thing, because that's a city or a that has a ripple effect on so many different things in a country. Now, you're not going to see a major return on that. It's a government activity by and large. If I'm an investor looking at it, I'm looking at technology-enabled businesses. That doesn't necessarily mean just technology companies, but the companies that are looking to use technology to increase their efficiencies... And or decrease their costs, things like that. Because I don't think technology is an industry. I think technology is a cross cutting type of tool and it's used in a lot of industries. I think there's a huge amount of growth that can be had in infrastructure itself. So that's a good business to get into communications infrastructure when I say that. The second thing is, I'd say that there's a huge amount that's going to be done in IoT. That's going to cover a lot of different industries. So I look and at I'm agriculture, sorry, Eric.
0: Uh, IoT. What does that mean?
2: Internet of Things or sensor connectivity, machine-to-machine type of connectivity. So we're already okay. seeing that in places like agriculture, in transportation and logistics, in even medicine and transportation. So you can imagine that there's a massive amount of space to grow here. And as connectivity becomes more available, this will help people make smarter decisions. Uh, give some examples. We work with one of the counties in Kenya on their non-revenue water supply, just helping them track their how much water is moving. They were losing 75% of their water and they didn't know where, when or how it was happening in real time. So it would be breakage or, or theft. So you put some water flow sensors on these pipes and all of a sudden, somebody sitting at the county government level has a real-time dashboard showing them where things are going on. And if they're losing water in a specific area, they can send somebody out to check it out. What used to take a week or two weeks to find out can now take a day. And that has a massive effect on the cost structure of the county's water supply. The same thing can happen with an organization trying to track their trucks or a company trying to do irrigation of their agricultural area. You can do soil moisture content readings and then turn on a pipe for irrigation all remotely, all automatically, just with sensors connecting to them. So I think agriculture will be really interesting. And it's primarily because of sensor connectivity in the future. So anyway, those are some of the places I would look at. I think fintech is interesting, but a lot of people are already in it. And while there's interesting things happening there, I would probably put myself more in... If I'm going to look at anything in the fintech space, it would be much more blockchain crypto-oriented than traditional banks.
0: I'd love to know, too, kind of what were the last couple books that left an impression on you?
2: Yeah, good question. Uh, Grit is one of the ones that I I read recently. It's a really good book about entrepreneurs. And I think pretty much any entrepreneur should read that book, talking about just why some people succeed and others don't, what it takes to push through. And really, this was written by this lady who had studied people who had made it in life, not just in business, but in a lot of things, whether it was the military or or something else, uh, written by a gal by the name of Angela Duckworth. And it's really about persevering. Another one that's that's had a long term impact on me is um, "Made to Stick" by Chip and Dan Heath. Uh, I've always really liked that. And then um, let me see one other book that I find really helpful is uh, "Here Comes Everybody" by Clay Shirky. It's a little bit older now, in two thousand eight, but it, it helps you think through this idea of what or this the the norm we have right now where there's a lot of cognitive surplus and what people do with it and do with their time.
0: Oh, that's an intriguing idea.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's um I do read quite a bit. To be honest, I read just as much nonfiction as I do business books. Actually I read more nonfiction than I do business books.
0: Right. Yeah. I try to read a mix when I can.
2: Yeah. And a lot of times if you're in this art entrepreneurship startup game, it's really important to get your mind away from the business sometimes. So, while it's good to sit down and read some business books that can help you think through some of your problems, there's it's also equally important to get away from that by reading some fiction books or by reading or playing a game or going on a walk or doing something like that and just getting out of the normal day-to-day grind because it can be wearisome. If you're not careful, you can get caught up in it and you can lose track and sight of what's important in life.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to close our, our conversation, I'd love to know if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be?
2: Ooh, one piece. Find a customer. <laughs> the most important thing is your is being able to get some revenue traction and a path to revenue. So that means a customer. So we get intoxicated by our products and what we build as a tech people generally. But even outside tech is just find a customer. And once you find a customer, then serving that customer helps you build the right thing
0: yeah so going out and talking to people and learning your market and learning about demand is kind of where you need to start if you want to be an entrepreneur
2: yeah absolutely you have to serve somebody with something make sure you know who that person is and um, make sure you're building the right thing for them
0: perfect all right well thank you so much eric for coming on the show it was a pleasure to have you
2: yeah thank you so much victoria It it was great to talk
1: That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at Podcast. You can also visit YAEPodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's YAEPodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.